Trump is a very complicated person and you have to look at him as a package. You don't get to cherry pick. This is the Daily Signal podcast for Friday, November 4th. I'm Virginia Allen. And that was the former ambassador to the European Union under President Trump, Gordon Sondland, talking about his time working for the president. In his brand new book, The Envoy, Mastering the Art of Diplomacy with Trump and the World, Sondland explains what working for Trump was really like and Trump's approach to foreign policy. He joins me on the podcast to share some colorful stories about President Trump and what his greatest successes were on the world stage. Stay tuned for our conversation after this. The Daily Signal is your source for election news and analysis. Join us on election night beginning at 8 p.m. Eastern for a live broadcast of the day's biggest stories. Our team of reporters and Heritage Foundation policy experts will be tracking the key races that will determine control of Congress. The live coverage begins Tuesday, November 8th at 8 p.m. Eastern. Visit DailySignal.com for everything you need to know. We are joined today by Ambassador Gordon Sondland, the former ambassador to the European Union under President Donald Trump. Ambassador, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So your new book, The Envoy, Mastering the Art of Diplomacy with Trump and the World, is out on November 8th. The book is a memoir, and you share quite a bit about your early life and your career. And one thing that you talk about is you say that you came from humble beginnings. What do you mean by that? Well, thanks for the question, because it's something that I'm, I'm most proud of. My parents were Holocaust survivors. Uh, they were separated by necessity uh, during the war for seven years. In fact, my mother left to escape to Uruguay uh, and uh, never uh, looked back. And my father met his daughter for the first time when she was seven. So uh, they emigrated to the United States. They were very poor. I grew up in a what I would call a lower middle class uh, background, but in a very wealthy area. It was sort of an irony because the area in which we settled had a lot of wealth and, and then also not a lot of wealth. So it made me very restless, envious, and motivated to uh, you know, make my own success. Yeah, well, and that's what you did. And I was, I was fascinated by the fact that you actually have some similarities to Trump and that you both got involved during your early career in the hotel business. What led you into that line of work? Well, I was in the commercial real estate business and then one thing led to another and all of a sudden a hotel came up for sale. I knew nothing about hotels, uh, but I sold the hotel essentially to myself. I put a partnership together found a group of investors, and that sort of launched me on my career of running what became a you know private real estate fund, which now has other types of properties in it. And in the Envoy, I go through this. By the way, if I might mention, the Envoy is out now. It's not out November 8th. It was released on October 25th. So oh, it's actually good. out and available at all of the usual places, including Amazon. Oh, great. Thank you for mentioning that. So yeah, please, please visit Amazon Barnes & Noble so you can get your copy of the Envoy. But it, it is, it's so fascinating um, to see this career trajectory that you went on. How did you first meet Trump and get to know him? Well, as I mentioned in the, in the book, uh, I met him for the first time just fortuitously in New Orleans in 1988, when George H.W. Bush was uh, accepting the nomination for president in New Orleans. And 
I had just bought a hotel with my group and he had just bought the plaza. And he was having real trouble with Weston, who was running the plaza for him at the time. And we were having trouble with Weston, who was running our, they were running our hotel. So I went to compare notes with him to see if there was anything we could do to work on together uh, and, uh, and deal with Weston sort of as a block. And he blew me off completely. He was very dismissive. He didn't want to talk. And then the very next night, I was sitting in the lounge at the hotel with three other people. And he walked in, came over, sat down because he knew the other people. And, uh, you know, he couldn't have been nicer. And I reminded him of that when we, you know, re-engaged again in 2016. And I said, you were a real fill in the blank to me. And, and I said, the next night you were great. And he said, well, of course I was nice to you. The next night you were with important people. <laughs> <gasps> At least he's honest, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so then how, how did you come to, to gain that position of, of being ambassador to the EU under Trump? How did that unfold? Well, one of the things the envoy does is it walks people through what really happens when someone gets an ambassadorship. The media likes to paint it as a very sort of smarmy, simplistic process where big donors write checks and get an ambassadorship. And while that probably happens once in a while, it's not the norm. The norm is that people join a party, the Democratic Republican Party. They work for years for multiple candidates, not just federal candidates, but state candidates, local candidates. They become known to the party establishment. They contribute, they drive candidates around, they host fundraisers, they bundle. And over a period of time, sometimes it can take decades, in my case it did, you become known to the party establishment so that when a president is elected of your party, the group that, that advises that president knows who you are, knows the kind of work you've done. Obviously you have to do something for that candidate as well. And then there's a selection process, and it's, it's not necessarily connected to how much money. In my case, I gave a million dollars to the inaugural committee, and I had raised a lot of money for the Trump campaign prior to that. But that million-dollar check bought me a ticket to the inauguration, albeit a very, very nice ticket for my family and my friends. There were 50 or 60 others who purchased tickets at that level as well. And I believe only myself and one other person, you know, received an ambassadorship. So if the, if the price of an ambassadorship was a million dollars, there were probably 55 other people <laughs> that were very disappointed. So talk a little bit about what it was like then stepping into that role and specifically what it was like working under President Trump, what he was like behind closed doors. Well, I'll tell you, um, being a United States ambassador to any post under any president is the experience of a lifetime. And one of the things that really motivated me to do this job was through the course of my life, I had met several people whose backgrounds, careers I admired that were also fortunate to serve presidents of both parties. And they told me to a person that serving as a U.S. ambassador was the most interesting thing and the most fulfilling thing they'd ever done in their life. And these are people who lived fairly successful lives. So for people to say that, it really made me want the job even more. Once you step into the job, you really have no appreciation 
for how consequential it is and how much you can actually do as the highest ranking federal official in that place, whether you're in a country or in, a, uh, in an organization, uh, you are the federal government and all of the agencies, whether it's the Defense Department, the Agriculture Department, the Commerce Department, go down the list of cabinet agencies, they all report to you, not to Washington. And you're the highest ranking federal official. You're basically the stand-in representative for the president of the United States. And it allows you to take your president's agenda, again, whoever he or she may be, and move it forward. And if you know which levers to pull, you really can get a lot done. And you can get a lot done very quickly. As you think back on all those experiences and the work of working to get things done, are there any interactions that you had with the president that really stand out in your mind, stories that you enjoy telling friends? Well, uh, one of the stories that's in the envoy, and there are, there are many, uh, which you know is, is uh, illustrative of Trump's personality. Um, we were standing in a room at the White House waiting for a foreign leader to arrive. And this particular foreign leader was someone who was known to me, and I was working on the file for various reasons. It was one of the EU members. And the room was filled with staff that were standing against the wall, if you can picture it. And the president and I were standing in the middle of the room waiting for the motorcade to pull up. And we were making small talk. And he reached in his pocket, pulled out a box of Tic Tacs, and shook the Tic Tacs into his hand and scarfed them down, put the box back in his pocket and looked at me. And I looked at him and I said, WTF? And he said, what? And I said, aren't you gonna share your Tic Tacs? <laughs> and he said, oh, oh, okay. And never even occurred to him. So he reached back in his pocket, pulled out the Tic Tacs and put some in my hand. <laughs> you know, and it was one of those where, you know, he just, it's all about him. <laughs> And I say that affectionately because it's always all about him. <laughs> oh, that is too funny. Oh, man. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, no, I, I do want to talk a little bit just largely about the topic of, of foreign policy. Because, you know, during your time as EU ambassador, I know you were a part of a lot of important conversations and decisions regarding American foreign policy. And I, I want to get into some of the specifics in a moment. But first, just kind of big picture. How would you describe... Trump's approach to foreign policy, and did you agree with that approach? Well, his approach was very um, not only counterintuitive, but unconventional. Uh, he was a contrarian in every sense of that word. Um, he did not view uh, foreign policy as this sort of, we all love each other, let's embrace, let's hug and kiss, and talk about how much we share values. He understood that that's the case, and he, un he understood who an ally was and who an opponent was. He was much more transactional than probably any president leading up to his presidency. And he would cut, really cut to the chase with uh, our closest allies and say, look, we love you, we know you love us, but there's some things in our relationship that need to be adjusted. And this is the adjustment I'm looking for. And they weren't used to being spoken to in that way um, because everyone wanted to kick the can down the road. Trump's uh, strategy was not to kick the can down the road. It was to pick up the can and 
hold it in front of the, the other side and say, what are we going to do about this can? Mm-hmm. And that was very off-putting to some initially, but over time, I, I began to notice that they appreciated his candor. He didn't waste people's time. He said what he meant. He meant what he said. And in many ways, it made my job easier. What did that look like in relationship to the EU? And what role were you playing in uh, in making sure that the the priorities that Trump had in, in America's relationship with the EU, that those were being prioritized? Well, the argument I make in the envoy, and this is part of Trump's foreign policy, is that we squander an, an enormous advantage that we have in dealing with the EU. When we pick an issue or an area where we in the EU can come to complete agreement on that specific issue and have no daylight between us, the power of our combined block of 800 million people and the power of our, our joint you know, economic might and military might is unstoppable. It makes the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, the North Koreans very, very nervous when they see that the U.S. and the EU are completely aligned on any specific issue, especially if that issue is directed toward them. Instead of leveraging that benefit, we sometimes squabble over things that are absolutely ridiculous. You know, the agriculture people argue about you know, whose meat is better and which tomatoes have GMOs and the, the safety people are arguing over seatbelts in cars, whether the German seatbelts are better than the American seatbelts and, and data retention and data privacy, which are important, but the amount of time and bandwidth that those consume, along with many, many, many other issues that don't even come close to rising to the level of importance as picking big issues and working together. And Trump has pointed that out. What you can now see with the Biden administration is when they do work together with the EU without daylight, which today, and hopefully it'll continue on Ukraine, uh, it creates a very, very powerful momentum. Yeah. If, If you were in the position right now of being ambassador to the EU, how would you be advising Biden on America's involvement with the war in Ukraine? And and how would you be encouraging the leaders in the EU to be engaging with Ukraine? Well, what I would be doing is I would be spending a great deal of time with the individual EU countries, along with the bilateral ambassador that's based there, our ambassador, uh, to persuade especially those that are lukewarm on support for Ukraine to shore up that support. And if necessary, to figure out what the United States can do for those countries to shore up that support. Because when we speak, when President Biden and President von der Leyen speak relating to Ukraine, it's important that they speak with one voice and no equivocation. Uh, I hope that my successor who is a very capable person, is doing that and has been allowed to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, As far as the Biden administration is concerned, this is one area where I depart from some of my more conservative Republican friends. And I consider myself a conservative Republican. I always have been and always will be. But there is some isolationist talk going on right now in the Republican Party, which I think is very, very dangerous. Ukraine is just a bellwether for the rest of Europe. And we need to stop the incursion at Ukraine before it goes further 
and then push it back and eradicate Russians from Ukraine that don't belong there. Yeah. And of course, when we talk about Ukraine, when we talk about Russia right now, we, we can't leave Iran out of that conversation. In 2018, when Trump pulled America out of the Iran deal, uh, you supported that decision. Why? Are, are there any lessons that you think the Biden administration should take from from Trump and his administration regarding foreign policy towards Iran? Yes. One of the arguments in the envoy is pivot and be flexible. Mm -hmm. I know that there were members of the Biden administration with good intentions that were the authors, the fathers, the mothers, whatever you want to call them, of the JCPOA, which is the Iran Agreement, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, as it's known. It is a failed agreement, and it's a failed agreement because of Iran's conduct and because it had some provisions missing that should have been in it, and I'm sure they could not get those provisions at the time. But that's all water under the bridge. President Trump's strategy with Iran was very simple. Starve their cash flow, because with little money, they have a very hard time conducting all of the malign activities that they conduct all over the world. It will also enrage their populace and hopefully bring them to the table. With money, they can do a lot. With less money, they can do very little. And that was Trump's strategy. And of course, the Europeans kept trying to circumvent our sanctions by developing sort of a bartering system. When we found out about that, I went on a little bit of a rampage to the extent that I could around Europe. I spoke with foreign leaders, I spoke with CEOs of companies, and I basically delivered a message that, look, you can do business with the United States and you can do business with Iran, but you can't do business with both, so pick one. Mm -hmm. And that got their attention because in each case, they clearly did 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times more business with us than they did with Iran. Sure. What do you think was Trump's greatest foreign policy success? I think his greatest foreign policy success was the Abraham Accords, which is uh, not well reported in the media. And if it is reported in the media, the slant is always that it's an anti-Palestinian uh, pact, which it's not. I think the strategy behind the Abraham Accords was you can't keep doing the same thing and expect a different result. And for the better part of four decades, uh, you know, the Israelis have tried to make peace with the Palestinians in all different forms. I think Trump began to believe that the Palestinians were not in the peace business, that they were in the grievance business. And I think he was able to convince the other moderate Arab countries that that was the case and that it was time to put an offer on the table of the Palestinians, to paraphrase the Godfather, an offer they couldn't refuse. And lo and behold, they refused it. So once the moderate Arab countries saw that the Palestinians really were not going to take yes for an answer, they were then prepared to move forward in their dealings with Israel. And even though the Arab Accords are just very new, the ink is barely dry on them a couple of years, uh, they're already showing incredible signs of both business, cultural, and political partnerships between many Arab countries and Israel. Yeah. In your book, The Envoy, you, of course, talk about your relationship quite a lot with with President Trump, uh, and you talk about the fact that you did choose to um, to testify during the impeachment trial. Um, share, if you would, what what is your relationship with Trump 
look like now? Have you all spoken since then? Because, you know, the result of, of you choosing to testify was you did lose your position. Trump did fire you. Any hard feelings? No, I mean, the, the last conversation I had with Trump at the White House was I told him I have to go testify. They've asked me to come in. They sent a subpoena and he said, go ahead, tell the truth. Uh, he didn't say don't go. He didn't say talk to the lawyers, make sure, you know, you say this or that. And I said, well, look, I wouldn't say this or that anyway. I'm going to tell the truth. And what wound up happening was I, I received a subpoena. My legal team said you have absolutely no basis to ignore the subpoena unless the White House decides to go to court and try and get a court to, you know, to prevent you from testifying. The White House did no such thing, nor were they willing to. So I had to honor the subpoena. I was not there to help President Trump. I wasn't there to hurt President Trump. I, I just wanted to get out of there and go back to work. So some of what I said was probably helpful. Some of what I said was probably not helpful. But again, it was the truth. And I'm not going to change that. Hmm. You pack so much into this book, The Envoy. What do you hope readers take from it? I hope the readers take a few things. Number one, Trump is a very complicated person and you have to look at him as a package. You don't get to cherry pick. Well, I like him except for X, Y, and Z. I wish he wouldn't do this. I wish he wouldn't do that. You have to either say I'm in or I'm out. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, and I explained why I got out had I not been fired. January 6th for me was a big red line. And I go through that analysis. Up until January 6th, while I didn't support every single thing he said or did or every policy, I was generally supportive of his administration as a whole. The other thing I want people to take from the book is that in America, anything is possible. The son of a Holocaust survivor and college dropout can become the United States ambassador to the EU and run a fairly successful business. And then I also talk about the big stuff. I use the phrase small change a lot and that we focus on small change when there are huge opportunities ahead. And I talk about that as well. I sort of refer to the envoy as a little bit of a bit beach read. It's not a textbook on the EU. It's not a textbook on foreign policy. It's sort of a fun, quick read that you can literally sit at the beach and now in the winter uh, sit by the fire and devour it in a, in a fairly short period of time. Mm. The Envoy, Mastering the Art of Diplomacy with Trump in the World is out now. Ambassador Gordon Sondland, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you joining. Thank you so much for having me. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. If you haven't had the chance already, be sure to check out our evening show right here in this podcast feed where we bring you the top news of the day. Also, make sure to subscribe to the Daily Signal wherever you get your podcasts and help us reach even more listeners by leaving a five-star rating and review. We love hearing your feedback. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day. And we'll be right back here with you for our top news edition at 5 p.m. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive producers are Rob Bluey and Kate Trinko. Producers are Virginia Allen, Samantha Asheris, and Jillian Richards. Sound design by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. To learn more, please visit DailySignal.com.